Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. feel like with the room set up this way, it's good that I don't have to turn all like this, but I feel like I'm preaching to an alley. So I'm going to try to look at everyone best I can. Um, We're coming off of a series on marriage, and I want to start a new series that will take us probably into the autumn, and that will be a series on prayer. But before I start the series on prayer, I want to do a shorter mini-series on the topic of unity in the church. And uh, it's something that's been on my heart, but also prayer has been turning around in my guts for a while. And it's, a, it's sort of a, a selfish sermon series in that I want to explore what prayer really is. All my life, I felt like that's been the weakest part of my following of Christ. Um, it's something I long to grow in, to understand better, to practice more joyfully. And so I want to dig into God's word and learn what he has to say to us about this gift of prayer. And then I want to share what I'm learning with all of you. And can I just see a show of hands? How many of you feel like you, would, you feel you need to grow in this area of prayer? It's always been a struggle. <laughs> a lot of us. I don't feel so alone. So I, I feel like God is leading us in the right direction for our next series. But starting this morning, I want to give a, two, a three-part series on the unity in the church. And this morning, and I'm going to draw those messages from the second chapter of Philippians. And this morning, I want to look at the first two verses. The title of the message is The Key to Spiritual Unity from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here's what the text says. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being United with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Last weekend, we just got off of our congregational retreat, and I got to tell you, Um, I'm sure some of you were unable to join us, but man, you've got to make it a point to come to our retreats. They only happen once every two years. And it is, for me, one of the highlights of being pastor here, being part of this church. I love our retreats because unlike weekends where we do experience, we taste that sense of togetherness, there is something powerful about being together for a whole weekend, a whole weekend together, And what I loved seeing as I walked through the cafeteria or seeing some of the small groups was that people who would otherwise never sit and talk to each other were getting to know one another. And your sense of this whole church, all of us together, starts to grow. There's a group shot from the the retreat. And I want to encourage you, maybe retreats are not your thing, but I really want to strongly encourage you as an act of faith two years from now when we do it again to make a point of joining us. I think God will meet you there. He will surprise you. Um, He will bless you more than what you might have expected. And so I really hope that you will join us. And it's one of the things that I really love about our retreat is there is such a tangible sense of togetherness. 
Now, some of you might be thinking, good for you, I didn't feel it, but I, I felt it very strongly, and I feel it very strongly at each one of our congregational retreats. It's a sense of, it's a glimpse of how beautiful the unity of the church really is. I was thinking about the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was to be crucified, and it was a passionate prayer. The Bible records for us that, you know, there's a lot of times you just pray to connect with God, but this was one of those prayers where it was so intense, so intense, that he had a medical condition happen to him where it was like blood was coming out of the pores of his body. I have never prayed that intensely. But it gives you a glimpse of just how weighty this prayer was. And one of the crescendo moments of that prayer is when Jesus cries out to his father and he says, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. So as Jesus is contemplating that the next day he would be cruelly beaten, torn to pieces, hung on a cross by nails, even in the midst of that foreboding destiny, he pauses to to cry out to God for the unity of the people who would follow him. It mattered a great deal to him. And what he says is the unity among us as his church, is one of the ways that a watching world will know that our message is true. That for all the hope, all the renewal, all the peace that we promise through the message of the gospel, if they see division among us, they will lose heart and will wonder at the truth of our message. Because how can a message of reconciliation be true when the very people of God themselves cannot be held together? by the power of that message. The unity of the church matters supremely. And it's an important part of our credibility and our witness. And, you know, sometimes you're going to go through things in your personal life that because they cause pain and difficulty will cause you to see the failings of others around you as well. That in my hour of need, no one was there for me. In my hour of need, everybody acted like they didn't know my name. And often what happens is that when you go through a personal trial, it leads to conflict with other people. That in the midst of your pain and struggle, you're especially aware of the shortcomings and shallowness of the community you're in. And when that happens, it's not to invalidate what you're feeling. Often our struggles do shine a light on how shallow our community really can be. But know this, that when Jesus prayed that prayer in the garden, he cried out to his Father for the unity of the church. It was God's intent to answer that prayer, and ever since, it has been Satan's intent to thwart that prayer. That God is working hard to unite his people, and the enemy is working tirelessly to divide his people. So every time you're going through something in your personal life, and one of the fallouts of that is it starts to drive a wedge between you and other people, know this, it is not just a personal struggle you're experiencing, but it is also by extension an attack on the unity of the church so that God's enemy can water down and erase our credibility and our witness to the world. 
that one of the things that adds pain to your own struggle is the way that it rips the church apart as well, or at least it rips you away from the church. It makes you feel separated, disconnected, and in conflict with others in the church. And so I want to shine the light on how important a work of God it is that together in the church, we work hard to be united one with one another. What exactly is the source of spiritual unity in the church? What is it that holds a church together? If you look at how segregated and segmented the church in America is, you would be led to believe that we think the source of our unity is our sameness or at least our similarity, right? Because if you look at it, many churches are organized around things like a common geography. That's the whole idea of a community church. We're sort of lying when we say we're Harvest Community Church because we're really Harvest Commuter Church. We are coming from as far as an hour away. The traditional community church is you get out of bed, put on your Sunday suit, and you walk down the street to church. You go to church on your block. That's no longer true, but many churches are still often arranged around geography or ethnicity, maybe a generation, maybe a socioeconomic class, an education level. I don't know what it is, but if you look at churches in America, you can often put a qualifying adjective in front of the church. Oh, we're an Asian church. We're a black church. We're a charismatic church. We're this church. We're that church. Because the organizing principle, the thing that unites us, is often just that we are all on the same page about a certain thing. A thing that may not be central to what holds the church together. So that if you get it wrong, if you misunderstand the real source of unity in the church, you won't experience unity in the church. If we get that wrong, then we will be physically together, but your consistent experience will be, I don't feel connected to any of these people. I could leave here tomorrow and be like, eh, it was all right. I remember those people I used to know, but I'll find others soon. That's the feeling we'll have when real biblical spiritual unity doesn't take root in our church. And I, I don't want that to happen to us. Do you? do you? Do any of you want to be in a church where you could feel like that? And if you already feel like that, are you okay with that? Are you happy with that? None of us are. So what we want to ask God to do is teach us what is at the heart of real unity, because I don't believe it's the fact that the majority of us are described by the same adjective. I don't think that's what holds a church together. Sometimes what seems like a perfect combination of people turns out to be a total fail. If you're a sports fan, you know that this is a great example of that. The 2004 U.S. men's Olympic basketball team that played in the Athens Games. Do you remember this team? The lineup included people like, let me just read some of the highlights, LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, Tim Duncan, Allen Iverson, Stephon Marbury, Amari Stoudemire, and Dwayne Wade. If you don't know anything about basketball, you're like, whatever. If you know something about basketball, that team should not lose to anybody. You got new school and old school together. What's, what's missing? And yet when that team came together in the first round, they lost 92 to 73 against Puerto Rico. No one was more surprised than the Puerto Rican team. They're like, what just happened? We just beat the U.S. And then they went on to pull out a couple more wins, and they lost to Lithuania, and they lost to Argentina. 
And the world was watching, and they're saying, what just happened? And what, what they realized was we were presumptuous, and the rest of the world learned how to play basketball. And on paper, this was a no-brainer. This combination of talent should not lose to any other team on earth, but clearly something was missing And for the first and last time, the United States men's basketball Olympic team took home a bronze medal. Do you realize that for all the national championships LeBron James wins, that will remain one of the great scars and blemishes on his record is he was part of the bronze medal Olympic team. Sometimes a no-brainer turns out to be, in fact, pretty brainless because this team should have won But something critical was missing. Now, I'm not an ESPN analyst, so I'm not going to sit here and try to figure out what was wrong with that team, but I'm using them as an illustration to say to you that sometimes you think if you just slap this group of people together, it should work, right? After all, they're mostly the same. If I blur my eyes, I can't tell them. They all look generally like of the same cloth. And yet, sometimes you can do that and discover that they don't mix at all. What do you do when you presume that unity is going to happen and it never takes root? What then is the source of unity in the church? Because we can get it just as wrong here, can't we? We can get us all together singing the same songs, listening to the same sermon, and at the end of the day still discover that we never really click with each other, that it never really feels like home. So what is the real source of unity that holds a church together? Paul gives us a clue in his letter to the Ephesian church. What he says is, speaking of Jesus, that from him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament. It grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So this is one of those times when, like a good Sunday school student, the right answer is Jesus. What is it that holds the church together Now, don't presume that this is such a self-evident and obvious thing because, let's face it, most churches are not truly held together by Jesus as the connective tissue. That's not what actively is pursued as the glue that holds us together. I think that's happening quite often here, but this is the one area where I really would love to see us together grow in our unity. What Paul is saying is our vertical relationship with God is the most important ingredient to our horizontal relationship with each other. And it's often the case that what triggers a person to come see me is vast disappointment with the church. They're going through personal stuff, but what usually triggers a discussion with me is that they want to say, but you know what really hurt me the most of all are these people. And it's true. I'm not suggesting that they're mis- They're imagining things, but I'm saying it's almost always the case that our greatest distress is disappointment with people rather than disappointment with God. But what I've come to learn, too, is that in the course of disappointment with God and with our own spiritual struggles, often it is the case that we stop pursuing our relationship with Jesus, that that vertical string gets cut And then we look to others and say, how can I find hope and peace? And the answer is you won't find it looking at each other unless that vertical relationship with Jesus is intact and is giving you life. What holds us together in the church is not the same color hair, 
It's not a common household income. It's not geography. It is that all of us, as different as we might be, share one thing in common. That is, each of us was radically transformed by an encounter and a walking daily with Jesus Christ. That is different radically as our life situations are. The one thing that we can say is the same for us is that this random group of people all met Jesus Christ. And together each day, we call him Savior and we call him King and Master over our lives. You take that away from us, we're just a goofy random collection of mammals. Like an audience in a theater that doesn't say, hey, let's wait till all the same kind of people go to see this movie. You just walk in, buy your ticket, and there you are. You're part of an audience. No organization, no unity, just sitting in the same seats looking at the same thing, right? And so it's important for us to remember that the real thing that makes us together horizontally is always first and only the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. Without that, we won't have what it takes to walk with other people for a very long time. And so in the second chapter of Philippians, he gives us some of these ingredients. What does it mean to have this vertical relationship with Jesus that leads to unity in the church? And he gives a couple of these things here. I just want to talk about them quickly. Because we often think about a relationship with God in terms of our responsibility and obligation to him. Do you have a relationship with God? Well, I know I should have quiet time. I I should pray more. We think about the stuff we're obligated to. But here's the thing. The relationship we have with Christ is primarily about benefit to us. There is obligation. There is duty and calling. But in that relationship, the most obvious and primary facet of it is that we are filled with benefit from knowing him. That it's not an equal arrangement where he serves us and we serve him. It's an arrangement where he serves us radically, generously, more than we could ever pay back, and then we respond in gratitude to what he's done. That's the relationship we have with Jesus. So when we think about our relationship with Christ, don't start by thinking of what you owe him. Start by thinking of what he has done in your life. Because if you don't focus on that, it will feel like drudgery. It'll become Christianized Islam. All duty, all duty, all duty. I'm tempted to say that's just duty. (laughs) Because that is not what the gospel Christianity is. It is first the good news that you get way more out of this than he will ever get out of you. And so Paul begins by saying, if you really want unity in the church, you've got to focus on these things which happen because of the gospel. First, he says, do you have any encouragement from being united with Christ? That word encouragement is the Greek word paraklesis. Now, you may not be a Greek scholar, but some some of you who have read a little in the commentaries know that that's the same word used to describe who the Holy Spirit is, the helper. That word literally translated means walking next to or alongside. It's this idea that one of the great benefits of knowing Jesus is that I never walk alone. One of the greatest offenses to the gospel of Christ is to say, I'm totally alone. It's the way you would feel if you were a husband and your wife, looking at some thugs down the street, said, if only there was a man here to protect us. Like, What the heck is that? Now, I'm not ready to get into a fight. I, I know my limits, okay? 
But still, I'd be offended a little because it's like, honey, I'm a man. But when you say it like that, it's offensive in that I am here and I'm ready to die for you. And you blow that off like you're just by yourself. One of the greatest blessings of knowing Jesus is that he promises to walk with us every day. And there's nobody else in your life who has kept that promise. Many have made that promise. No one has kept it. Not even your spouse, if you're married. Certainly not your parents, even though they brought you into the world. You are supposed to take care of me. You are supposed to walk with me, watch out for me, teach me stuff. Why didn't you? Because we are not capable of keeping that great promise as much as we want to. We can't, but Jesus can, and he has made that promise to each of us. We can reject it. We can neglect it. But the truth is, every day when we wake up, that's what he wants to do with us. He wants to walk with us. The encouragement we get from Christ is that in a real way, he actually is with me. I once shared with you a period of my life where that felt so real. I would wake up in the morning, and I saw the face of Jesus portrayed by the actor on the ABC special about the life of Christ. I don't know what that actor's name is, but that's the face that has permanently burned itself in my head when I try to picture Jesus, okay? And I remember waking up in the morning, seeing the light stream through the window, and in my mind's eye, I could picture him sitting at the edge of the bed saying stuff to me like, It's about time you woke up. we got a great day ahead of us. Let's go. And I just remember feeling for this season of my life, like I, like he's not just an idea, but he's somebody present in my life. And during those, those months that I was experiencing this, I also happened to be in a season of fasting and prayer that seems to, there seems to be a connection there. We'll figure that out in the sermon series I'm praying. But I remember interacting with Jesus as though he were physically present with me. I I remember driving and someone would cut me off, and during that season, I would turn like he's in the passenger seat and be like, did you see that? What should I do? And I found it harder to want to hold up my middle finger thinking of him sitting next to me in the car. Sometimes I feel like doing that, even though I'm a pastor, because sometimes people almost hit my car. Do you get what I'm saying is some Christians historically have described this idea as practicing the presence of God, of taking hold of this idea that he actually walks side by side with me. And when you feel truly alone on this earth, the invitation is think twice about what you're feeling because you don't need to feel that as long as Jesus lives. Now, how you get from where you're feeling to the truth of that, we can talk about at length. But just know this, that's one of the great comforts, the the privileges of knowing Jesus. He also says, do you have any comfort from his love? And the the idea there is that word comfort is like a Greek word that means speaking um, deeply with, intimately with. It's a kind of, it's like this, the love of God is a theological reality. It's a real idea. But the love of God is also an experiential reality. Okay? It has to be. I mean, you could have a married couple and the man keeps going, Oh, you know I love you. Do I have to say it again? You know. 
And if it was just a piece of information, it would be a little redundant, tedious to keep having to say it over and over. I love you, okay? I love you. You could even record an after school, I love you, I love you. There, you just play it for yourself 20 times a day. I will repeat this fact to you. But you know it's more than that. We don't want to just know that we're loved. We want to feel it. And you know. You know the difference between hearing you're loved, knowing you're loved, and looking in someone's eyes and, and feeling the embrace of their heart around yours. Feeling like this person really cares about me. That when I'm not present with them, I still occupy a piece of their mind and their heart. That's why we get so blessed when someone goes, hey, I was antiquing the other day and I saw this hilarious thing and it made me think of you, so I bought it. And you're like, never mind the gift. You're like, you were not with me and you were thinking of me? Like you saw something and thought of me? Moi? That's so blessing because we all want to know, do I matter? When I'm not in your eyeball vision range there, Am I real to you? Do I exist to you when we're not together? Am I really here for anyone? And the answer of Christ is this. He doesn't just want to tell you he loves you as an idea, but he wants you to feel that in in your heart. And it's not something you can conjure up on command, but I can tell you this. Every once in a while, when we really need it and reach out to him, He will fill our lives with such a tangible sense of his love for us, it will blow you away. If you've never experienced it, make it your single-minded prayer. Make it your single-minded prayer. Pray this every day until you feel it, because you don't know God until you felt this. If God is just an idea to you, you've fallen so short of what he could be. Because what he wants to do for you and me is he wants us to feel somewhere deep in our gut just how loved you are. When my kids were younger, it was so much easier to show them because they wouldn't wriggle around. They would just sit there and you would, you would hold a little child and they would sink into you and hug you back. And both father and child are so happy in that moment. I don't just hug a child to love them. I hug a child because just them receiving it, hugging me back, feel so bonded, and I miss that. Now, you try to hug them, they're like, okay, gotta go. And it's harder to find ways to show them how much they still mean to me. I don't love my kids a single bit less than when they were cute little babies. But I long to be able to hold them long enough to show them. I want them to feel what I feel for them. Sometimes I sneak into your room at night. You don't know this, but I just watch you sleep. I delight in your innocent face. I pray over you. I hope you don't wake up. (laughs) Have scars for life. But, you know, I think that's the heart of God for us. He wants us to feel in a way that no other person can make us feel. Like love from the inside out. And that's related to this last thing when he says, do you have any common sharing in the spirit? That's a really goofy English phrase, and it translates one single Greek word. It is a word that literally translated is one soul. Right? Sumsukos. It's one soul. Meaning, when we are together in the spirit, 
when we have a fellowship, a deep relationship or communion with the Holy Spirit, we don't just know God like a guy we know. We feel bonded to him in a way that is supernatural, in a way that you just go, I don't know how to say it except it's one soul. I feel bound with him together. It's what I always always imagined romantic love could be but never turned out to be. But with God, I feel it in a profound way. It's like being wrapped together with another being, not needing a single word, just feeling deeply bonded together. And what Paul's saying is if you experience that with the Holy Spirit of God, it immediately changes your capacity to understand how to have intimacy with other people. Maybe you've heard it said of you, you don't know how to express your feelings. You're emotionally constipated. You don't have to raise your hand, but... Maybe someone has told that to you, like you're like a cold fish. You think lots of true things, but your heart is dead, man. It's so cold. One of the ways that God awakens that cold, dead part of us is through communion with his Holy Spirit, where from the inside of us, we feel God is present in our lives, wrapping our hearts around with us. And from there, we begin to learn what it means to be connected with another person. In other words, you can't talk about unity in the church as though it is the product of our commitment to each other. But it is starting with our commitment to God and his commitment to us. If we want to experience real unity the way we long for in this church, the starting place must not be looking around for people who are similar to me or who like me or who will be nice to me. The starting point must be to turn your eyes upon Jesus and reconsider the nature of your relationship with him today. You might have had an amazing, rich relationship with him 10 years ago, but the real question is, what is your walk with him like this morning? What does it mean to you today to know Jesus Christ? That is the most important question you will ever wrestle with in your earthly life. And as Jesus moves into this the center of your life as the most important relationship. I promise you this in faith. As he becomes your most life-giving, important relationship, every other relationship you have will be affected positively by that. You will hear less and less that you're emotionally constipated, that you don't know how to love people because receiving the deep, deep love of Jesus begins to change your ability to love other people. I'll wrap up by just saying, if that is where we are as individuals and we come together as a church, then we're going to experience the kind of unity the Bible promises. And I want to just point out a few things from verse 2 that he describes as what that unity will look like. Okay? He says one thing is we will be like-minded. That doesn't mean we'll all think in lockstep. This is not like-mindedness that comes from drilling doctrinal enforcement like you this is true you must believe this it's not like that it's more like that we're clicking when your convictions your sensibilities your instincts are in line with somebody else it's that happiness you discover or experience when somebody else thinks the same way you think from the inside out not because they were externally trained to believe this but because that's just how they see the world and when there is one lord 
and one spirit and one God shaping our hearts and our minds. And then we fellowship with other people in whose lives he's doing the same thing. Guess what's going to happen? It's like if I develop my own martial art, Dave Kwando, right? And I'm teaching it to six different boys in the church. This is how you do it. You know, and there's certain very distinctive movements. And then they meet each other and they start to fight. And they're like, whoa, you also know Dave Kwando. I recognize the mark, the imprint of a similar teacher in your life. And, and so it's like it's a draw every match. Because every time you do this, he's like, and you know, it's just like a perfect matching. And there's this beauty, this joy that comes when you meet people who think like you. Whose idea of right and wrong, up and down, good and bad, are in alignment with yours, not because of training, but because from the inside out, someone else is shaping those things. Training alone can only touch behavior, but following Christ, allowing him to form you, changes who you are inside. So he says that that will be one of the marks, is that when we walk together, when we try to make big decisions together, we're not just arguing like like on some chat room or some social media outlet, firing off one-sided monologues at each other. What we're doing is in the same room facing this big unknown thing. We don't know what the exact right answer is, but as we talk, there is like an agreement of what is truly most important. And it's a joy to be in a church where the most important values are shared from the inside out, a like-mindedness. And then he, he says this one thing that rappers always say, one love, right? One love. But that's what we're supposed to have. What he's saying is a church that has the kind of unity built when everybody is deeply connected to Jesus is that we're not widely disparate in our definitions and our standards of love. One of the things that really disrupts marriages and families and friendship is that people have different ideas of what love is. One person will say, what? I already loved you. Shut up. You're so needy. I loved you enough. And the other person says, I'm still very hungry. I want more. And we say this a lot to each other, don't we? We say, what more do you want from me? Seriously. What more do you want from me? One love, one love means that that's not a rhetorical question, but it's a genuine question. That what we realize together is Jesus loves me a certain way. No matter how dirty and nasty and betraying I become, every time I crawl back to him, Every time, he says, come home. I've never, ever knocked on that door and sensed that he was pretending not to be home. The way we do for trick-or-treaters. Shh, nobody move. Every time I knock, he invites me back in. And I begin to understand that this love is not a normal love. It's something profound. It's something not like any other kind of love. And it begins to teach me that love is very costly. It's very selfless. And I don't get to define the limits of love any more than God would do that with me. He says love is unconditional. It's limitless. I will go deeper than you could ever imagine in loving you. You will never outdo or outpace my ability to love you 
says the heart of God. Ever. It doesn't matter what you've done. There is nothing so foul that the love of God cannot catch up to you. And so when we are shaped by that kind of love, you can't look at your friends or your family members and say, I'm done with you. What more do you want from me? I'm so sick of trying to love you. You are unlovable. We can't say it because we know that we would never want Jesus to love us that way, and he never has. He has always loved us to the nth degree. And so, in a community where Jesus is loving us like that and shaping our hearts, we begin to experience a different kind of standard and definition of love. One love is not a rapper's closing remark. It is a profound statement that can change a community. And finally, he says, we will be one in spirit and one mind. What that means is it's a bonding together so deeply rooted, it's like this. How can I describe it? Each of us have probably felt this at one time or another in a group of people. Maybe it's a group of childhood friends in your old neighborhood. Maybe it's some college friends. I don't know. But most of us have had some kind of experience where we felt so bonded together to a group of people, we just knew we would walk together for life. I had a group of friends like that in college. And what's interesting is over the years, as we've moved to different parts of the world, our lives have slowly drifted apart a little. But when something major happens, I am amazed that after a year and a half of not hearing each other's voices, we instinctively call each other to pour out our hearts. It's what we long for in a church where we we don't just say, oh, you know, I like the, the praise team there. They have great music or... The, the preacher is one of the best that God has ever made in the world. We don't just say things like, what we say is, what I'm going to miss most about that church is there's just something I feel with those other people that's going to make it painful to leave. Don't you want, I, I, I'm not saying <laughs> it's a good thing to feel pain. What I'm saying is, don't you at least want to love so deeply that the idea of being parted from those people causes real pain? Doesn't it always kind of hurt you when you thought you were friends with someone? They're like, hey, we're moving. Yeah. See you later. Aren't you happy for us? And yeah, I'm happy for you. I'm glad you're moving out to a new adventure. But I thought the idea of leaving me would create a little more pain than that. Just a little something. Like, what I'm going to really miss most is what we have. I, I want to hear that. But instead, it's often like, hey, we're moving. Can you help us pack? <laughs> like, I want to love so deep that one of the things that holds me back from relocating is that I'm going to not be with these people anymore. The idea of not being together with you is enough to keep me in this nowhere job, in this cold as frigid ice winter city, because you're the ones I'll miss. And maybe that's not where you are today, but what the Bible describes as real unity feels like that. That it's more than just the same purpose, the same mission, the same logo. It is hearts so knit together that the idea of parting from one another causes distress. Because we are really joined together. I'm feeling that as my kids go off to college. But I also felt that 
every time I got an amazing job offer. And over the 20 years at this church, I've gotten so many incredible job offers. Some of them, if I'm honest, I at least prayed about. Because <laughs> they were to amazing cities with amazing benefits. And what held me back every single time before the Lord spoke, emotionally what held me back was I could not bear the thought of not being with you guys. This is my church. You're my family. And unless God takes my life or disqualifies me in some way, I hope that we're together until I stop breathing. That's just my heart. And I think it would be a beautiful thing if we all together felt that for one another. And maybe God will move us on, but he'll move us on as he parted friends in the Bible with tears and with an ache in our hearts. I pray that God will achieve for us that kind of unity. Isn't that what you would love to have one of these days? Anyone? It's free to say amen. There's, there's no charge. Well, I got to wrap up here, so let me just give you a closing challenge. If you're feeling disconnected and you feel very um, separate from this church, alone here, I don't believe you're imagining things. It's probably a very real experience for you. And I don't want you to have that experience here. I want better for you at Harvest. So I'll give you two invitations. One is, don't suffer alone and in silence. Say something to someone. Let them know that your experience being here is causing pain because you want and long for more. And what, what you want is deep, and all you're hitting is shallow. It's like diving into the kiddie end of the pool and bashing your head each time, wanting the water to be deeper. And it hurts. And I want to encourage you, if that's your feeling, don't feel that in silence as the bitterness grows. Say something. Say something to the people around you. Say something to the very people you thought would have been there and just weren't. Say it to them. Not out of anger, but tell them what I actually want is not for you to feel bad, but for you to love me more deeply. It takes humility to do that. But I want to invite you to do that if that's what you're feeling. Also cry out to God. Let him know that it hurts to be in his house, but not part of his family. Did you long for that? But let me also challenge you here. Look hard at your own relationship with Jesus. Because if he's not the one who loves you best, the love of everyone in this room won't compensate for that. You've got to go to him directly first and discover that his love is better than everyone else's, that it'll change you. On the flip side, if you're happy as a pig in mud here, because you have friends and you hang out together and you play golf together and you eat together, but somewhere along the way, those friendships never dug past the surface to deeper waters. If you smile and gorge yourself and eat and drink and be merry together and still you feel something like aloneness, 
like there are things deeply in me that I can't share with these people. It would ruin the mood. It would change the dynamics if I poured this out, if I opened that door. If you feel that, I want to ask you, even though you're satisfied with what there is, yearn for more. It's not enough to eat, drink, and be merry. That's not what the Bible promises can be ours in Christ. He describes something much better than that. And if you already have people you love, take a risk and go deeper. It won't always be rewarded, but someone's got to take that step. Yearn for better than chit-chat and a lot of laughs. Be willing to share the real stuff that's going on in your heart. And if you're afraid to do that, I also challenge you. Look deep again at your own relationship with Jesus. Because if you're satisfied with shallowness with Jesus, you will always be satisfied with shallowness with others. He wants to go deeper with you. And as you let him take you there, it'll wake up a hunger in you to go deeper with other people. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.